Welcome to the Farm Bits Podcast, a product of Nebraska Extension Digital Agriculture. I'm Jackson Stancil. And I'm Samantha Teton. And we come to you each week to discuss the trends, the realities, and the value of digital agriculture. Through interviews and panels with experts, producers, and innovators from all sectors of digital technology, we hope that you step away from each episode with new practical knowledge of digital agriculture technology. Welcome back, FarmBits followers, and thanks for joining us on the 11th episode of the FarmBits podcast. Now that we've heard about soil sampling, soil mapping, and how those measurements get converted into maps, the focus of this episode of FarmBits is on synthesizing this information into a single layer classifying variability within a field. Such a layer is often called a management zone map, and that's what we are going to talk about today. To get into this topic, our guest today is Corey Wilness, president and founder of Croptimistic Technologies and Crop Pro Consulting. Croptimistic and Crop Pro are both headquartered in Saskatchewan, Canada. Corey started Crop Pro Consulting in 2003 while simultaneously developing a soil variability mapping platform that grew into Croptimistic Technology, which was incorporated in 2014. Croptimistic is probably best known for their SWOT maps, which stands for Soil, Water, and Topography Maps. Corey will describe these maps in more detail during this episode, as well as the complementary suite of hardware and software technologies that round out the 12-step process for mapping a field using SWOT maps. This episode provides a great industry perspective on management zone-based approaches from a person who has boots-on-the-ground experience in the industry and knowledge about what's important to a farmer. So with that said, here's our interview with Corey Wilness of Croptimistic Technology. What is exactly the suite of technologies that Croptimistic Technologies offers uh, to its, its clientele? Well, primarily people would be doing business with us because they want to access the SWAT maps layers. Um, so soil, water, and topography in the maps is what that stands for. And I guess we've spent most of our time building the module that takes different soil layers, builds out all kinds of, uh, sort of watershed models, uh, separates things into knolls, mid-slopes, depressions, takes EC layers and organic matter layers and builds them all into a single soil type map. So that's our primary piece of digital technology that people would want. And then we've, the soil tap, uh, soil uh, mapping segment of the market is very unscalable. I think, you know, most of those things are very difficult to do. So we've developed the swap box, which is a, basically an electrical conductivity mapping system that'll record elevation and the EC data and stream it all right to our servers. It can start going into the swap maps building process right away. So that's that swap box is a piece of technology that we market that's pretty popular. And then our crop record software, it's a suite of apps for iOS and Android devices, uh, plus a Windows database that all the consultants can use to work with the technology. So that'd be our primary three things that we, we sell at Croptimistic. So you, can you talk about how all these technologies work together? Like what's the process um, from maybe from the swap box to the swap maps? Um, so there's approximately 10 steps that people would take. So step number one would be field mapping. And then all that data would be turned into swap maps and its associated layers. 
step two is to send all those maps and layers to our app. And then the precision agronomist would go out to the field and they would ground truth the layers and the maps and take their soil tests in the field to sort of validate everything to make sure that they have the right map. And, and when they soil tested, it all makes sense. And then from that point, once the soil test results come back, they're, they automatically go into the system through API or just through import importing them in. And then again, an agronomist can start working with the maps and associated soil test layers. From then they can integrate in their yield goals for the various zones and come up with what they would deem as the right fertilizer response for each zone. That's done with the farmer. So the farmer would approve uh, reports for each field for each zone. And then after that, I guess those would be built into prescriptions. So if somebody potentially hasn't used management zones before, what would you tell them? Like, what is the value proposition for a grower to inform their decisions using either a swap map technology or other general management zone approaches? Well, I believe for soil applied products, so soil applied fertilizers, herbicides, seed products, that you need a soil foundation layer. So when it comes to soil sampling for nutrients and organic matter and topsoil depths and fertilizer response, it's related to soil water and topography. So I guess I don't see any other approach. Um, To me, that's the foundation layer. Um, When it comes to what's the yield potential of the zone, so... I make like a soil type zone map. That's a SWAT, SWAT zone. So it's like your soils layer. And then when you want to know what the yield potential of that is, um, then that should be done for each crop, basically. And you can define yield zones based on your SWAT zones. So in Western Canada, a crop like lentils will do very, very well in the dry areas of the field and it'll flood out and die and get diseased in the depression. So that's, you know, depending on the type of years you're having, you'll know by zone, by traditional yield maps and imagery, if you want to use any of those tools to define your yield goals by zone and a, you know, a different crop, such as canola, might be completely inverted to that. If your dry zones are, you know, never your high yielding areas and it thrives more in the wet spots in the field and that'll show up in your, in your slot zones. So, well, I love them in use together. I don't see that imagery or yield-based approaches have anything to do with soil and should not be used for soil sampling. Now, crop yield zones for, say, something like fungicides. Like, you know, we do variable rate fungicide or on-off fungicide. Well, sure, go get a crop yield zone. Like, areas that are heavy and high biomass and thick and where your highest disease potential is or should get fungicide, maybe more fungicide. In areas with the crop died, should get nothing. Well, they don't need a soil map for that, right? That's defined by an image. That's what it should be used for. Mm -hmm. Um, So depends on what you're doing. If you're putting nutrients in the ground and there's no crop, well, you need to have a soil map. So so when you think about all the different layers coming together, 
Um, how exactly is the information in these maps conveyed to a farmer? Like when a farmer looks at the system and, and kind of pulls up their SWAT, SWAT map, what exactly are they they going to see and, and how? Because I imagine it's kind of hard to uh, piece all of these different uh, layers of information together in, a, in an easily digestible way. Well, the most exciting thing about a SWAT map is that the farmers, they connect with them really, really well because they, they, they completely understand, they see their field and what you're trying to do. So for example, because it's like a soil type map, you go out into the field and let's just say you're in an area that's dominated by, you know, the hills are thin top soils, low organic matter, they're a little bit coarser textured, so they're all, they're drier. Um, and then you go down the slope so then yeah, that, that would be like a zone one on the map. Your mid slopes would be like your field average soils, you know, typically very productive soils year in and year out. And then on the other extreme, um, let's say that they're very wet soils. So these are typically areas with high organic matter, deep, thick top soils. If anything, they maybe tend to flood in this person's land. And so when, when they see their map and they, they look and they see, yeah, look at all these sort of hills and eroded soils and these driest areas of the field with the coarse textured stuff. They're, they're all mm -hmm. together on the map. And they, they know their field. They've been over it a hundred times, seeding it, and spraying it, and swathing it, and combining it, and doing field work. So yep. they clearly know that. And they, they look at all the wet areas and they're all the exact, you know, they're all together as a zone. They're like, well, yeah, that's, okay, yeah, I completely see this. And you say, well, that's how we soil tested it, right? We went to all these hills and we put all those samples together to one bucket and, you know, here's what the soil looks like there. Here's the soil test results. So it all completely makes sense to them because farmers are very connected with the field that way. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Uh what would you say is the minimum information needed to be collected to generate a SWOT map? So you already said what SWOT stands for, so I'm assuming those layers are included, but what other layers are you including in a SWOT map? Well, you always have to have a high resolution elevation layer. So whether that's collected through RTK GPS system on a truck or a quad or something, mm -hmm. or a piece of equipment can work, but they just drive back and forth. They don't really drive topography and all the water runs and different things like that. So the data may not be as good or else through LIDAR or like, so elevations through planes or drones, um, as long as that's of sufficient quality, drones are usually pretty good at ground control points and stuff. So that's needed to build all the water models and build all the topography layers and stuff. And then we need some type of actual soil layer. So we really like the electrical conductivity layer. It's a relatively cheap sensor. It's they're pretty hassle-free, um, quite common, easy to access. And that gives you a one meter resolution of your, uh, into the soil of your, basically, you know, your influences are texture, water, and the solutes mm -hmm. dissolved in water. So a bit of a tricky measurement but it does make a nice uh, layer and and if you're if they're in an area where there's like absolutely flat 
one soil type, no salinity, you know, tile drained. Basically, you could say there's no variability. Then we could also use like a some type of organic matter layer. There's probably still going to be some historical wind and water erosion and topsoil moving around, even in the flattest stuff. So, absolutely, we definitely like to have two layers. Right? So, elevation is for sure, and then you need EC or organic matter. Typically, EC is what we prefer. So, uh, so as you mentioned earlier, the EC that you're measuring typically comes from your SWAT box. Uh, right now, we work with uh, a dual EM system. It is kind of the most common way that we take soil EC measurements in our research and generate uh, management zones for our research. And so, would you mind kind of describing to us how the SWAT box works? If it's kind of like the dual EM, uh, and you know, you, you mentioned it gets down to to one meter, but how exactly is it getting down to that one meter depth and measuring soil texture in that way? Yeah, dual EM would be very similar to like the tool that's inside of our swap box is an EM38, which is made by Geonics here in Canada. So really, I don't, there wouldn't be any difference between those two devices. Right. We also have several several topsoil mappers from Austria and mm-hmm. two different types of those. And they work excellent as well. Um, we've also like had theirs. MSP platforms, and we have a various eye scan sitting here in the shop that we've connected <laughs> our salt box electronics to. So there really is no sensor limitation per se as to like all of them are maybe a little bit different in their own unique way. But in the end, like all these instruments, if, you know, the mapping conditions are good, the maps all look the same. Basically measuring down to about a meter some of them at different depths and different ways and without getting into all the technical stuff. And I'm not really a <laughs> person to answer those sure. high tech questions anyway, <laughs> but um, uh, we've used them all and we have lots of these and really the conditions are ideal. They all pr- produce the same map in my opinion. So, so just to follow up on that is the, is the advantage of the SWAT box, and I, I think I heard you mention earlier that it is directly logging to the cloud while it's going. And so is that is that one of the largest advantages of the SWAT box? Because I know I've been frustrated having simply a field data logger there at times, and you know you can easily lose lose data when it's only stored locally. We designed the SWAT box because it's very difficult to scale soil mapping technology. That's the biggest problem, right? So if you got a do it with a person, with a vehicle all the time. It doesn't scale. So this swap box is just plug and play. You, you can attach it to any piece of equipment and you can connect it to the 12 volt power. There's no console needed. So you, we've attached them to all kinds of drills, to sprayers, to people fertilizing, and the operator doesn't do anything. It just sends the data, streams it right to our servers. Um, so that's the advantage of the swap box. Yeah, having it easy to use is so important. So that's awesome to hear how you guys are doing that. Absolutely. So w- you talked about piggybacking uh, the SWAT box uh, and, and kind of more of this, this dual EM style or, or non-intrusive sensor on the farm machinery during other operations to make double use of those operations. Are there any data quality issues that you run into or, or challenges that are associated? Uh, you mentioned, you know, interference from uh, lines around the field, um, but does the speed of the operation affect the data quality or does anything, uh, any electronic interference on the actual machine itself? affect data quality at all for those 
No, there's no real problem with interference from electrical components on any piece of equipment. The challenges with equipment is sort of the faster you go um, and how close it is to metal is then you can get interference because it's, you know, that adds and if it's not a consistent um, level of interference, if you get things bouncing around and things shaking and rattling, you know, then that's going to affect the quality of your data. So we've kind of identified what the sweet spot is for how far it needs to be away. And then we do have to make sure it's going on implements where, um, you know, those things are minimized. So combines have been tricky. Where do you mount it on a combine? You got to mount it near the back and you got a straw chopper there with moving knives and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and even within the swap box itself, I mean, you can't have any, even a, a bolt like that, that's not tight and rattling. So everything's designed to be, you know, super tight. Ideally, yeah, we love it if it's done like with a seating unit, for example, because people are generally going pretty slow. Mm-hmm. Sure. You can mount it nice and close to the ground. And, you know, there's you have to have a very pretty consistent height off the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, we It has its own height sensor, so... At the end, if a person lifts or something, and then all of a sudden your your heights are off, we can delete all that data. So there's as far as speed, no, it doesn't matter. It's just the faster you go, the more you're rattling and shaking, and that affects those types of sensors. Sure. Um, and the other thing is with the data quality is you have to make sure if it's a small drill, like anything under 50, 60 feet, we found that one one box is a high enough data resolution to make decent maps. If you have a hundred foot drill, maybe that's not that common in some areas, <laughs> but in Canada it is. <laughs> you have to mount a couple, two, two swap boxes to get high enough resolution. So, um, but other than that, no, I, it's worked extremely well. Actually, you just plug it, guys go out and work in the field. It starts up when they start their equipment, send stuff to the servers. There's been very little work required to make good maps from that type of operation. That's great. It's always good to minimize a trip across the field. So glad that works. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we talked a lot about the data collection. Now switching gears a little bit to how you guys are using that data. So, you know, without giving away any uh, company secrets or without uh, getting too uh, scientific or over some of our heads here, can you talk a little bit about um, how you are synthesizing that data set and the computational processes that make a swap map. So how are you putting all those layers together? Yeah, that is a very tricky question. So <laughs> we've been working on, um, when we first started, I would say we built good map quality. We wouldn't have known any different because we didn't have anything to compare it to. But back in 2008, it was mostly butchering maps and layers, even a lot of the times the data went out of existing software and into Excel sheets where we had to do certain things to it to, um, to, you know, to build topography models and stuff like that, which was extremely challenging. Um, but and it would take two to three hours to build the maps for a field. Wow. And so in the process of the last 12 years and up to 2020, we've been working on what we call a swap maps module over that period of time. And 
we've got it down to like 20 minutes now. So a lot of the things have been automated. So most of the layer generation is all automated now. So we'll automatically kick out just just by bringing in the elevation and EC data and or you know, so if you had soil color maps, uh, that would be all done automatically, building those individual layers. There's really no human intervention with any of that stuff. And then turning that into swap maps is where all the tricks <laughs> happen. So um, a lot of it, I guess you could say, has been designed just basically from the over a million acres that have been mapped now and ground truth. And so you get the feedback from all the people, including people like myself, of course, from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we just have developed our own set of rules that define, you know, what a, how an area should be zoned. So just a, as an example, um, I always say there's three types of depressions. So maybe on your topography map, it'll make a depression as a depression. But from your EC map, you could go in and say, these depressions are high EC. Well, that means that they're saline, likely. And these depressions are low EC, which means those will be non-saline depressions, but they're likely high organic matter. Because high organic matter areas always can have like a low EC. So if you see old low dirt lines in people's fields that they started to farm through, you know, it'll show up in low EC. Um, people will drain sloughs and stuff like that. Very high organic matter areas, those will often be low EC. So that's the way we differentiate between, you know, non-saline and saline depressions. And then we'll use the water models themselves to define, does this depression flood or not flood? Because then that defines three different types of depressions. It defines it into depressions that drain. So those are probably the, some of the most productive areas of the field year in, year out. Mm-hmm. And there'll be de- depressions that flood. And in dry and maybe average moisture years, those can be very, very good areas. But in wet years, they might be dead. And the depressions that are saline will be depressions that are always unproductive. Right? I mean, consistently unproductive. It doesn't matter what the weather is. So that's just an example of zoning out, you know, different depressions and how you would define them. That's a great example because I think it illustrates how you're using kind of a decision tree and really thinking through each zone and not just clustering things together very automated in an automated way. So this is as a great example and very interesting. Yeah. And I guess to kind of follow along that earlier, you mentioned that uh, you kind of use these soil samples and pull in the results from your soil test uh, using an API. To what extent do you kind of validate your zones based on those soil samples or any crop scouting layers out there? Uh, you know, do you use that to correct it? Is it is it an automated process? I'm just kind of interested in how you how you use those layers as well to validate your zones. Yeah, so once the those initial set of layers and the set of swap maps is uploaded and the agronomist is out there ground truthing, um, that that's a little bit subjective. And as they're soil testing and stuff and putting the stuff in the bo- in the buckets, you know, mm-hmm. they may make some changes. They may request what we call modifications. You know, there can be a lot of artifacts and fields, like things could be not exactly go together like the program defines it. 
So if there's specific modifications or only specific to a certain field, then that has to be done manually. Um, but there can be what you call more regional type modifications that happen. And once we've worked in a certain region, that can show up on a satellite image where you say, well, yeah, you've defined this area, but you know, the shape is a little off, right? It seems to be sure. the area as effective as a little bit bigger. And so that can be done with satellite imagery. Lots of times it's done by just being out in the field, right? Like we, we kind of don't let the agronomists use the map if it's like not over 80 to 85% correct. Right. So yeah. if people have been ditching and there's not like a lot of other, you know, cleared bush lines and well, what do we do with this little part of chunk of the field? <laughs> yep. This was pasture and that wasn't. There's over time, it's like, well, a field just isn't always a field. And so there needs to be these modifications. And yes, you can use satellite imagery or something to define where those are and why they're different. Um. I was wondering, how often do growers need to reevaluate their fields to generate new swap maps or generate new management zones? Or are these kind of long-term zones and then you just soil sample frequently? Or what is the recommendation there? Well, we generally treat it like a swap map is, you know, the field never changes. So why should a swap map change? The only thing that's really changing is your environment every year, right? It's the weather. Mm-hmm. So people say, well, you know, it's this high yielding and low yielding. Well, you know, your maps should change. Well, no, it doesn't change. It's a depression is a depression. It doesn't move up to the hill. So the only time that I would say you have to do maybe some remapping is if the person does major landscape changes. So you maybe had lots of flooded depressions and they're no longer flooded depressions. Or people do a lot of tiling, right? So if you tile, that's going to change everything. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, you started with one quarter and the guy keeps on adding, buying land around and keeps adding it to the field. And you can, you can generally cut things and put them together. But at some point in time, it's just like you spend more time in the office butchering data to try and make it look <laughs> good, then it's easier to just go remap it and get it all new and fresh. And so, yeah, that's probably some examples of where you'd redo things, but it's very uncommon. Like we don't really have to unless yeah, some major management changes have happened. What about if you created the zones with the mindset of, I'm going to use these for a prescription for seeding rate. And then now someone comes to you thinking, you know, maybe I want to use it for something else. Um, you know, do you have different maps or different algorithms for maybe different operations or are these zones that should carry over for multiple things? Yeah. Yeah. In general, the map is the map. Um, so we are using it for many different uses. So variable rate seed is very, very common mm-hmm. um, in small grains and canola. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, an area that I work with, I mean, we've got people in the United States doing it on corn and different things too, but I don't want to speak to that crop because I'm not an expert in corn. But <laughs> the very variable rate seed is very, very common up here. Like in the area that I work in here, um, it's kind of a wetter area. Like putting more seed in the depressions has been commonplace for over a decade now. Um, for people, it's a high mortality area and those 
crops are slower to emerge and if you get any heavy rainfall events uh, so people will put more seed in even in the saline areas too to try and get something growing there using water and competing with weeds and lots of that stuff's just things people tried right and said yeah we like this we want to keep doing it and maybe in certain areas people put more canola seed in the salinity and said it all died and so i'm not doing that anymore you know i'm cutting i'm going to cut my seed there so it's very area specific but i would say that's very common and now we've done like variable rates um so like avidex and i guess uh, i should maybe say soil applied herbicides Mm-hmm. Um, for various types of weeds where, you know, a lot of these soil type herbicides are related to what? The texture and organic mm-hmm. matter. That's what the use rates are. Yep. And then your heavier textures and higher organic matters is typically most of the weeds are anyway. So people don't put high enough rates on down there and and then that's where most of the weeds are. So um, stuff like that. Yeah, and we're doing water modeling now too. We've connected soil moisture probes to the maps. And so during the growing season, every day, people can generate a predictable, you know, water map by swap zone in their field. And I guess I could go on. But yeah, there's lots of uses for the swap map that we keep keep developing. Yeah. And I think one thing that you mentioned that I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about is the scalability aspect. So what do you think is necessary uh, in order to get these soil-based approaches, management zone-based approaches to scale uh, with growers and consultants out there. You want to hear my pitch deck? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I would say, you know, it's, uh, like I didn't clearly define what I'd call our 10-step process, but we've worked on automating the first two steps. I kind of talked about that already, like collecting data. Mm-hmm. Like we've worked heavily on swap walks and, ways that we're bringing in data to build step two, which is to build the maps and all the layers and send it all out like through the apps and stuff. So we've done a ton of automation and we've done a ton of work to build these modules and it's taken us a decade, right? Basically to, Mm -hmm. to get to where we are now. Now the other eight steps all need automation too. Right. So that's the whole challenge of the whole system. Like even talk about ground truthing, you know, you got a person out there driving around, punching holes with a truck. Well, that doesn't scale, you know? So, so then we work on that. We're working right now on the ground truthing part and saying, okay, well, how can we develop these maps better so we can help people to predict, right? What's going on out there? What should they be looking for? Maybe the maps can be even smarter in the future. Now we can add soil types to them, right? So when they go to the field, they can go to a zone one and it's going to attach the Sasurgo or Saskatchewan soil test database to that and say, okay, well, that's likely this type of soil type. Go look, right? Is this what you see? You know, and if it is, well, then it probably has these defined characteristics, which we can already apply to it. So that's like step three on the ground truthing part. Like it's just to... Give the person that's out there more information to help define what this is and then make it digital, not just in someone's brain. So every single step along here, I could keep going. But as you see, it's like you can automate a step or two of a 10-step process and companies like ours will will go out and get it done. 
you know, soil mapping stuff isn't isn't scalable, like compared to something like satellite imagery, where you can anyone can go buy a hundred different programs today and get satellite imagery and years and years of it and start pushing out maps to farmers and you know not soil test and not ground truth them and start pushing out prescriptions. Like there's companies that do that. Mm-hmm. So if you want integrity and you want to do like what actually works for the farmer and be in his business long-term. I just don't see how anyone can do variable rate without a soil map. So we're spending basically all our time right now automating. There's, we have probably like four different machine learning projects going on in Canada here. Wow. So when you, when you think about automating these processes, this is just a tangential question. Are you kind of excited to see some of these robotic soil samplers that are coming onto the markets? Is that, is the actual manual process of taking soil samples uh, a big hindrance or is it just more understanding and, and parsing through that data that's, that's most in need of automation? Well, I guess we're working on that space too. So yes, we very much need automation of soil sampling. But really, it's, again, another extremely hard thing, right? It's very expensive. These systems are extremely expensive. And so maybe you could scale it, but if no one can afford it, then it doesn't do anyone any good. So there's kind of a catch-22 there where you want to do millions of acres and you know, people can drive around with the truck and get it done for a few dollars an acre. Mm-hmm. So that's what you're competing with. So I absolutely think that that stuff needs to scale and we're working to try and be one of the companies that scale it. Um, but it's not that easy, right? Like there's yeah. lots <laughs> of sensors out there. Oh, yeah. What, you know, how are you going to do this? Sure. I guess we've been working on all our scalability is just adapting it to existing equipment, right? Like, we can't do it something with a, without attaching it to a piece of equipment that's already going across the field and collect data that way. Well, don't bother because yeah, it's just <laughs> another thing to invest in at that point. I mean, you got you got more capital to put forward when you already have a, a machine out there. You might as well make use of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking of these technologies, you've already mentioned a few, but are there any advancements or technologies that you're anticipating coming to Swap Maps or things that you're really excited about in the future? Yeah, I guess I've alluded to a few of them. We're working on soil sampling and testing technology. We're working on integration of um, you know existing soil survey databases like Shergal and SaskSys, which is Saskatchewan's version, and connecting those to swap maps. Um, and one of the things that's released this year is our swap water maps that we've been working on two years with that. With, um, a John Deere dealer called South Country Equipment, and they've worked with us to we've done many many fields with multiple probes, and feel like we have a real good water model now. So that's going to be released in this year that people have a soil moisture probe, John Deere or Pestle. We're connected to right now. And uh, yeah, it'll map water across the field. So that's kind of nice for making Mm -hmm. in-season fungicide or nutrient decisions. You know, maybe on your farm, you decide all the hills are just too dry and they don't warrant the extra nutrient application, nitrogen or something. Uh, maybe it's just the mid-slopes and depression. So you can go out and, you know, do that with a swap map or integrate it with a satellite image or something like that. 
so that's exciting. And then probably the other thing we're about, I think, a year away from is what we call SWATCAM. It's a app we built that basically works on Android devices and it connects on the sprayer. And it'll collect thousands of images in the field. So every 30 feet, it's snapping a picture. Hmm. And then we've developed a machine learning algorithm to identify crops and weeds hmm. by SWAT zone. So not only do we make just what you call your generic crop and weed map, and people could use that for certain things, you know, maybe touching up heavy weed pressure areas or using the maps in the future to define, you know, where heavy weed areas of pressure areas are and, you know, scouting them and stuff like that. Sure. But also like the SWAT zone um, crop population. Mm. So when you're varying seed rates, you know, that's the, you need some validation. You need some verification of, is this what we want to keep doing? And so with, with those pictures and with that information, now there's no person going to the field and we'll collect thousands of images off the person's entire farm and say, well, this is how these fields are doing. This is, you know, generally what we're learning. And so that's an exciting technology that we're working on too. Yeah. Those both sound really exciting. They do sound cool. That's, I think that kind of tying almost a scouting piece and automating the scouting piece is going to be such a big part of precision ag because I think that's one of the biggest gaps that we have is is tying some of those stand counts and uh, weed pressure counts, stuff like that, to our actual precision ag data layers. Um, so I guess we like to end every podcast uh, with with a common question. What piece of advice do you have for our listeners out there to improve their operation or to understand digital ag for their operations a little bit better? You know, I think there's a lot of decisions that get made about digital ag and they all start with people deciding whether they like a platform or not. Like, you know, they'll, I would say it's pretty common that people would look at our software system and say, well, I don't know, it's kind of clunky and it doesn't <laughs> do this and it doesn't do that. Right, but we haven't really focused on the software platform. Um, I think what I'd like to get people to focus on is like, what is this thing going to do for you? Right, so lots of software people go out and they're, oh, you've got daily satellite imagery and you know, you've got this and that. But after a couple of years, and they've got data collection galore, collecting data off all your sprayers and combines and all this stuff. And after a couple of years, they're like, they haven't done anything. What have they changed on their farm? Right? Like, so I think that's the biggest downfall. I really like that, like our focus is really to come to the farmer and I'm not trying to sell a piece of software or that he's going to digitize his farm or something. Lots of our customers, they don't even have yield mapping or data collection. But they have swap maps. They are specifically doing something specific on their land defining it into zones or soil samples so that they can manage their million dollars a year they spend on fertilizer more effectively, right? And then every year we spend all our time refining that process, this agronomic process to, to get better, to make this guy more money and to make it more environmentally friendly. So that'd be my suggestion for farmers is just don't get caught up in like features, right? some piece of software and what it can do and data. Like you got to get focused in on, well, what do you need to accomplish on your farm? Like what's going to make your farm better? 
zoom right in on that and nail that down with the technology. Take the lipstick off of it and <laughs> say, you know, down to the ground level here, is this thing gonna work? Thank you very much to Corey for taking the time to join us on the FarmBits podcast. It was great to hear about his experience-based perspective on the implementation of management zone-based approaches and the value that that approach brings to farmers. Yeah, there were a couple of things that really stood out to me in this podcast, one of which was the fact that what separates the SWAT box as a sensor for soil properties is that it logs directly to the cloud uh, and it can be mounted on several different agricultural implements. And so this really helps to make the entire soil mapping process very efficient because it can happen during typical ag operations such as planting and farmers don't really have to worry about the data transfer piece. Uh, you know, putting a USB stick into a monitor and taking it out and transferring the data to, compu- to a computer, which is huge. Uh, and so that was a really interesting aspect. And then there were some other aspects of management zone validation that Corey talked about that were also pretty interesting, right, Sam? Yeah, I completely agree. My favorite part was the examples on how not all depressions are the same or not all side slopes are the same. You know, many programs would quickly group similar landforms together or similar soil types together, but we must also consider the water interaction, such as drainage, and how that might vary. So he shared how adding a tile system would completely change these water interactions and could call for a new management zone um, analysis. I also liked how Swap Maps adds a human verification process that is sometimes missing in other technologies. And that's one example why Swap Maps and this verification process is so important. Yep, computers can only do so much without boots on the ground. So mm-hmm. we look forward to you joining us next week as we will continue discussing the theory behind management zones with Dr. Newell Kitchen of the USDA ARS. Thank you for taking the time to join us today on the Farm Bits podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts to be informed about the latest content each week. We welcome your feedback. So if you have comments or questions for us, please reach out to us over email, on Twitter, or in the review section of your favorite podcast platform. Our contact information can also be found in the show notes. We would like to thank Nebraska Extension for their support of this podcast and their commitment to providing high quality informational material to members of the agricultural community in Nebraska and beyond. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on this podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the views of Nebraska Extension or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We look forward to you joining us next week for another episode of Farm Bits. Farm Bits.